Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Helping you wake up, remembering this is our Father's world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. Good morning again. It is the second hour of Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. You can find us at myfaithradio.com. we got lots of resources and opportunities for you to engage the Word of God uh, more deeply, to connect with others. We've got all kinds of stuff going on. Uh, right now we are reading through the book of Acts. It is the 7th of February, so we are in the 7th chapter of the book of Acts today. Let me make a couple of comments here on uh, this uh, concern about what is in our school libraries and, you know, the fact that parents ought to uh, have access to what is in school libraries. Um, you have access to what's in your school libraries. Go to your school library. Go there. Volunteer to be a reader to the children in a classroom. Volunteer to be a reading mentor. Join the Read Aloud Revolution. Host a read-in Read it all. Buy books for classrooms that you appreciate. Buy books for kids to take home. Um, Go check what's in those little libraries all over town, the one in front of your fire department, the one that may well be on your school campus. Go see what's in there. Take out the books you don't think are appropriate and fill those little libraries with books that you hope kids and their families will be reading. Like, there are ways to invest ourselves in what kids are reading and being sure that they have access to good reading material instead of just, I don't know, barking up the political tree every single day. All right. Carmen's commentary. Uh, I learned over the weekend that tech companies are increasingly catering to older people. Why is that? Well, older people are becoming increasingly tech savvy. Uh, Over COVID, they not only learned to shop online, they learned to use social media. They bought a lot of virtual reality headsets to beat back isolation and loneliness. And for marketers, uh, wealthy uh, retirees have become now a very attractive sales niche. So there is uh, there are groups of, you know, that monitor these things. And so now um, in the top 10 global consumer trend for 2020, Empowered elders top the list. People who are over 60 have financial resources, 82% of whom already own a smartphone. And so these companies see that as not only a way into their lives, but a way to serve them. And so I am wondering what ministries, what churches are thinking about this as well. Uh, These empowered seniors are doing their health screenings online, they're getting their financial services online, they're taking classes online, they're playing games online, they're engaged in social media online. Are we serving them through our churches and ministries in those same ways? You remember the, um, remember the, uh, the old-fashioned medic alert button? You know, I've fallen and I can't get up. 
Well, MedicAlert actually had an, uh, a, a huge uptick during the pandemic, um, and people were hitting the MedicAlert button for all kinds of things. They activated their um, their MedicAlert button not because they had an emergency, but because they wanted somebody to talk to, or they needed help reaching their doctor, or a handyman, or a plumber. And so uh, something called Life, Sta- Life Station emerged, and it's like a concierge-style means for these empowered seniors who are cut off from normal activities to access a range of, uh, of services and relationships. I want you to think for a moment about how the church is called to do just that and maybe how we have failed um, in keeping up with seniors in our communities uh, today. Acts chapter 6 was our reading yesterday, and I was reminded that very, very quickly, I mean, within a matter of days after Pentecost, as the church grew by the thousands, there were lots and lots of people in need. And so the people of the church, right, Acts chapter 6 talks about this, talks about this in Acts 2 as well. You know, they sold what they had so that nobody would be in need. And by Acts chapter 6, there's already a daily distribution um, to these older widows, and uh, and fairness was a concern. I, I guess I'm wondering, like, what happened to that? What happened to the church being the church in that way, reaching out every single day to the widows connected to the body of Christ? All right, there's a lot going on in the world. It's sometimes very difficult for us to not only keep track of, but to get our minds around what's going on in the world today. Elizabeth Newman is a former assistant director for the Department of Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. She's going to join us uh, to give us some perspective on what in the world is happening in the world. You are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBerge, and this is Faith Radio. Joining us again today, Elizabeth Newman. Uh, she formerly served as an assistant director for the Department of Homeland Security and Counterterrorism. She now works with an organization called Moonshot. Um, Elizabeth, welcome back. Thanks so much for having me, Carmen. Absolutely. All right. Can you walk us through a little bit of what happened last week? Um, this head of ISIS uh was was killed. I, I actually thought we'd already killed the head of ISIS. So what's going on? Yeah, we we did. The the big name that folks might remember, al-Baghdadi, um, was killed in the fall of 2019. Um, that was a pretty big deal. Baghdadi um, had a, I, I, I wouldn't say he was on par with bin Laden by any stretch of the imagination, but um, certainly had a very uh, a big presence uh, in recruiting and, and providing kind of this um, belief that that the caliphate, this idea that they were going to establish an Islamic state was real. And when you take out the head of uh, state, so to speak, um, it, it really has an impact. And, and sure enough, after um, that period, the the United States declared um, the coalition to defeat ISIS, declared that ISIS had been defeated, um, but they didn't go away. Uh, in fact, um, shortly after Baghdadi was killed, um, his the successor, this guy Al-Krashi, was named. Um, he had um, 
been somewhat of a uh, mentee of Baghdadi's, and it's believed that Baghdadi actually selected him. Um, succession in terrorist organizations is a big deal, so most likely he had already been pre-selected, and then the council came together shortly after Baghdadi had died and, and officially named this guy. But there wasn't much known about him. There was even rumors at the beginning back in 2019, and I was in government during this time, and we were trying to figure out, does this guy even exist? Is he just a figment of imagination? Um, turns out he does exist, or he did exist. Uh, he had this uh, track record of jumping around terrorist groups. He was originally a part of Saddam Hussein's uh, military, and then he joined Al-Qaeda, and then he was kind of a snitch and um, helped U.S. forces for a while. And then in 2014, he shows up working for ISIS. And one of the most um, horrific things that he is known for was his uh, orchestrating the abuse of the Yazidi, Yazidi uh, women and children, uh, the, the um Slavery, uh, and I, you know, for sake of the audience, won't go into details there. But mm -hmm. um, if you've heard of any of the atrocities that happened to the Yazidi women and children, uh, he, he was responsible for that. Mm. So um, our troops uh, uh, found uh, our military intelligence found where this guy was staying. He was not moving very frequently, um, and uh, planned a an action that sounds like it took months. Um, and they executed it kind of as they expected, and were able to kill him. Unfortunately, in the process of trying to uh, take him into custody or kill him, he chose to detonate a bomb and kill his family, um, which is not uncommon. Uh, does happen a lot in uh, of, that's kind of the terrorist mindset of if I'm going to mm -hmm. go, I'm going to go out in the bang and take everybody with me. So, uh, but glad that he is um, no longer a threat. Uh, but that does not mean that the threat from ISIS is gone. We still have a um, trouble in that area. I think that it's always a good reminder, Elizabeth, um, for us to refresh our understanding of ISIS and their end game. What do they want? Well, the original vision was a caliphate, which means a, a, a swath of territory that would be able to operate according to their interpretation of Islamic law. Um, you might remember when ISIS was on the rise, they would put out these propaganda videos recruiting people to come join the, the caliphate. And it was very attractive uh, propaganda. And a lot of people uh, left the West, left the United States, left Europe, because this concept of, of living in a utopian um, uh, world that adhered to your values uh, sounded lovely. Of course, they they got there and then discovered that it was not as lovely as it had been advertised to them. Um, and a lot of people tried to escape and weren't allowed to escape. Um, it, that's not to say that there were some that went and were, you know, absolutely doing it for the sake of violence and terrorism, but they did a pretty remarkable job of recruiting um, young people into this vision of utopia that just, of course, did not come to fruition. Um, ISIS was extremely brutal, one of uh, way more brutal than Al-Qaeda was in terms of how they not only prosecuted war against their enemies, but how they instilled uh, discipline amongst their ranks. Um, and they uh, still, even though they have been largely defeated, they don't own territory at this point. They don't control 
any swaths of uh, Iraq or Syria anymore. Um, they still are, are desirous of committing um, terrorist attacks. They have affiliates in Africa and other parts of uh, Southeast Asia, including Afghanistan, um, and they will uh, seek to continue to cause um, death uh, and destruction to the extent that they think that that will help them eventually um, read, you know, be be able to rebuild this caliphate idea. Mm-hmm. All right, we're gonna. Um... We're going to pivot from what's going on in the Middle East to what is going on uh, on the Ukrainian border with Russia. We are talking with Elizabeth Newman. Uh, you are listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LeBurge, and we'll be right back. I see you dressed in So uh, you might have missed it at the end of last week, but uh, Russia's Vladimir Putin and China's Xi Jinping declared a, quote, new era in the global order, uh, endorsing their respective territorial ambitions in relationship to Ukraine and Taiwan. Uh, They unveiled a sweeping long-term agreement that challenges the United States as a global power, challenges NATO as a cornerstone of international security, and challenges liberal democracy as a model for the world. Uh, And they did this at the opening of the Beijing Olympics. Russia and China now have a pact. China also has a pact with Iran. Um, But let's talk specifically about Russia and what is happening, um, you know, at at the at the border with Ukraine. And Elizabeth, what you what you think the future portends? Well, um, it's not looking great. (laughs) Uh, You know, we've been observing this right for um, uh, three or four months now. And each month that passes, um, the di- diplomatic measures don't seem to be um, causing any sort of uh, disengagement, but rather um, we just see more and more ratcheting up. We had U.S. troops um, deploy to Poland uh, last week. We about 1,700 arrived um, to kind of supplement the 4,500 that we already have stationed there. The U.S. has been very, very clear that in deploying troops, they are not going to Ukraine. They're going to our NATO ally countries to reassure, especially those on the eastern flank, that uh, we will abide by our NATO agreement. Um, but, um, of course, Russia might perceive that as uh, uh, provocative. Um, the uh, I think... <laughs> Uh, the the obvious thing, and, and the, the UN ambassador actually made this comment that, you know, by us observing the Russia buildup of uh, of troops and of equipment and uh, trucks um, all across, on almost the almost surrounding Ukraine, by us observing that and responding to that, that is not us being provocative. They are the ones <laughs> that are being provocative here. But um, the latest military analysts um, looking at satellite photos of, of what has been deployed uh, indicate that that Russia has about 70% of the troops, um, the forces that are needed um, in order to conduct a full-scale invasion. Um, they believe that they're in the final phase. Uh, the equipment and the vehicles have all been pre-positioned. It is now about moving the personnel to those uh, uh, vehicles and to the equipment. Um, so if we start to see that movement of troops, um, that is a good sign that they're about to go in. 
Um, some military analysts think that this could happen within two weeks. Uh, yesterday, you had Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor, go on the Sunday morning shows and, and say that it could come at any time. So there is a bit of a disagreement among the various analyses as to whether or not this is imminent or whether there might be additional uh, uh, preparatory actions that Russia might be taking. Um, but it, there, there really is no good news here. I mean, we can pray that uh, Putin uh, takes his, um, you know, just kind of dials it back and, and moves everybody um, uh, back to their normal positions. But all signs and indications are he is preparing for uh, an invasion, which would be the largest um, military invasion in, in Europe since World War II. Um, the uh, assessments are that you would see millions of refugees and thousands of lives lost. Um, it, it would be quite catastrophic. When we think of neighboring countries or countries that neighbor Ukraine where refugees would um, would flee, um, you know, is there one that you say to yourself, this is the most realistic place where we as the West could equip and empower some, you know, some country to receive and serve refugees from from Ukraine? You know, that is an excellent question, Carmen. I haven't actually put much thought to it, but um, certainly all of the countries that border Ukraine are uh, NATO countries. And, and one of the things that um, we can we as a country can do is offer humanitarian support, even if we decide not to engage militarily with uh Russia's actions. And that doesn't mean that there won't be any consequences. The president has been quite clear that uh, in partnership with other European allies, there will be consequences for Russia. Um, but on the humanitarian side, um, certainly, uh, you know, the, the traditional, um, uh, you know, Red Cross, uh, mm -hmm. the Doctors Without Borders, um, uh, those and the UN has a has um, the ability, like with their refugee program, you can actually make donations to the the refugee program that is for that part of the world. Um, those would all be uh, NGOs to to maybe look into um, for contributions. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's some great Christian charities that do work worldwide as well. Uh, world Vision, World Relief, um, uh, you know, any of those um, that uh, that is Samaritan's Purse. They often, um, when there is a, a catastrophic situation like this, will will put out a call for donations, um, looking to search resources. That's really helpful. I'm thinking that uh, uh, Poland and Hungary, um, you know, might be in a better position than Moldova um, or <laughs> Romania or Slovakia, right? I mean, like, I'm just like thinking right. about the little I know about. And then um, Belarus borders Ukraine. Mm -hmm. Belarus is aligned with Russia, correct? Not with NATO. That, uh, that's that's correct. Bel Belarus, okay. in particular, the the president of Belarus has become Putin's puppet of late, yeah. and um, Russia is staging troops in Belarus. Yeah. So let's be praying um, for those people as well uh, living living in Belarus because their country is being used in a way that I I would imagine many of them um, resent and would like to resist, but find themselves unable to do so. It's um, very, very challenging times. Um, Elizabeth, we don't have time to get into China's new strategic alliances with Iran and Russia, but I'm hoping maybe we could tee that up for a future conversation. Uh, absolutely, Carmen. Yeah, <laughs> the world that would be increasingly challenging, isn't it? <laughs>
It is. It is. And and yet God is sovereign and we have every confidence uh, in him and we're going to we're going to rest in him in the midst of it. Elizabeth, um, as always, thank you so much. That's Elizabeth Newman. You can find her at Moonshot. Uh, she is a former assistant director for Department of Homeland Security in the area of counterterrorism. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBerge. This is Faith Radio. So, um, Good Samaritan, you know where that phrase comes from, but not everybody does. Not everybody recognizes that, you know, when we make cultural reference to a Good Samaritan, we're actually making a biblical reference. We're calling upon a particular story where Jesus was asked a question about who is my neighbor, and in response, he told a story about um, a person from Samaria who ends up showing mercy to a person in need um, on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. And so I want you to be mindful of that as I read this headline um, from Lake Erie, where the U.S. Coast Guard on Sunday rescued 18 people from an ice flow that separated from the land um, while they were snowmobiling. So first of all, be careful out there. The ice may not be as thick as you think, uh, and the water is a dangerous place to find yourself. But I also want to give a shout out to the, quote, Good Samaritan with the airboat who assisted the Coast Guard in the operation. So the helicopter lowered a rescue swimmer who began hoisting operations while uh, stationed Marblehead's airboat got underway. The helicopter listed, lifted seven people. Nobody needed medical attention. Uh, and the Coast Guard wants everybody to be reminded today there is no such thing as safe ice. There you go. I don't know. That's my winter warning and my reminder that uh, the only reason that we use the term Good Samaritan is because Jesus introduced us to the concept. So what kind of leader are you? I want to talk about leadership here for just a moment. Are you the kind of leader who plans everything out in advance? Uh, you got you don't just count the cost, but you double and triple check the numbers. Are you the kind of leader who only moves forward if success is certain? Well, I'm more of an opportunity leader, and that's uh, one of the reasons I love our next guest, Roger Parrott. He is the author of Opportunity Leadership. And, well, yeah, I don't often get uh, get the opportunity to talk with authors who quote me in their book. So mm-hmm, that's another little tidbit as well. Dr. Roger Parrott up next. Dr. Roger Parrott is the president of Bellhaven University. You can find him at bellhaven.edu. Roger, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. What a treat to be with you, Carmen. Thank you so much. All right. So it's not uh, it's not often I get to interview uh, an author about a book that I have not only endorsed, but in which I am quoted. So all of that is full disclosure to those listening that I'm totally sold out, bought in, and this is my kind of leadership. So tell us uh, what is opportunity leadership and how does it differ from maybe the strategic leadership that we've all sort of been led to believe is the right way? Well, I, I think, first of all, your quote's one of the great ones in the book. Uh, you know, page 137, you said, for a lifetime 
Looking back, God reveals a strategic plan that I experienced one grace-filled opportunity after another. And, you know, when, when you and I first talked about this book, you said, that's it. That's what I've done my whole life. And now I've got the language for it. And and really what the whole concept is, is that <clears throat> I think we set out on a plan for our life. We think we have a direction we want, God wants us to go. And the question is, are we going to get so gripped into that direction that we really miss his opportunities? Or are we going to, to sense that calling, sense that purpose, but free ourselves up to catch the opportunities? And it's in the opportunities that significant ministry comes, not being wedded to a long-range plan. And so that's really what I'm calling leaders to do. I've lived it, you've lived it, and it makes a world of difference. So when we talk about opportunity leadership, we are talking about um, a readiness to say yes to God and move in the direction that he invites us um, in terms of a kingdom advancing opportunity. And in order to do that, we have to have enough space in our quote unquote strategic plan uh, to have the resources available, time and otherwise, to do the thing that God's inviting us to do. Sometimes at the organizational level, that is very challenging because people like the plan the work, work the plan, measure everything in advance um, approach uh, to, you know, organizational leadership. Talk with us a little bit about how we how we find our feet in this conversation, especially when we have to have it with a group of people to move something forward. Yeah, this this is not something you can do on your own. In fact, I wrote a little vignette in the book about a a, a corporate leader who <clears throat> who uh, always did the plan, always had the PowerPoint. Here, here's where we're going to go. We, if we can't measure it, it's not any good. The whole kind of thing. And instead, he gets up at the big uh, meeting in New York of all the stockholders and says, "This year, we're going to do something very different." We're going to trust God for opportunities. I don't have a plan. I don't know if we're going to be a bigger company or a smaller company, but we're going to serve well. I don't know if we'll have new products, projects, or we'll stay with the ones we have, but we're going to do the best we can, et cetera, et cetera. Makes this great speech. We're going to trust God. And as said in the book, within minutes of the first tweets leaving the room, the stock price prices plummet, and uh, the board calls a meeting. He gets fired, et cetera, et cetera. In an organization, this would be such a radical change. In fact, the book has been reviewed by one reviewer as radical. I, I don't see it that way because I've lived this, but it is a radical change to let go of a of a long range plan. And, and there's an image that I use, and I think you've got to get an image around it to help everybody capture that idea that we're really not set on a destination. We're going to trust God for the destination. And instead, we're going to plan very well what we know we have to do. And we do that at the university. We plan very well, but then let go of where that future is going to go and trust God to do it. Opportunity leadership is really a uh, is a new way of thinking about leadership and the future of the organizations that we are privileged to participate in leading. Um, it is, in my view, a, um, a a way of living into my expectation 
that God is going to do the unexpected, that he is going to do miracles, and that he is going to invite us as his people to participate in those. Um, And so we want to stand ready to say yes, to move uh, in the direction that God invites at the moment he invites us to do so. And so Opportunity Leadership, Stop Planning and Start Getting Results is the new book by Dr. Roger Parrott. Um, Roger, talk with us uh, a little bit about some of the traits of Opportunity Leaders. Oh, I, you know, they all, there are six of them that I outlined in the book because it's not saying you don't know how to lead. No, people do know how to lead. But let's build on that some really unique, special, godly traits that are built on the assumption and the grounding that we're not going to be wedded to a long range plan. And that's a hard thing to let go of. So we've got to put some new traits in and talents into the skills of leaders. And it starts, first of all, with a theology of trust, a complete trust that God is going to lead the future. The way I talk about it on my campus is that we want to be a sailboat prepared to catch the wind of God and go wherever God's wind takes us rather than a powerboat that goes where we think God wants us to go and completely ignores the wind. And we, the Christian church, have gotten pretty good at building some pretty impressive powerboats. And in doing so, we are ignoring the wind of God. So it starts with a theology of trust. You know, there's no plan B. Uh, When I first started talking about this years ago, and I'd say to my board, we're not going to have a plan. And there is no plan for the future of Bellhaven. If you come to my website for the university, it doesn't exist. And and people will pull me aside and they say, well, yeah, this is great. And this is what we ought to do as Christians. But if this doesn't work, what's the real plan? Uh, There is no real plan. This is the plan. We're going to trust God for where he's going to take us. So I think a talent is is this theology of trust. Another one, you know, would be that we're going to line up opportunities with our mission, our gifting, and our capacity, all three of those. Because when opportunity leaders really kick in, you'll find you get a lot more opportunities than you ever thought you were going to get. And and seeing those come about, you've got to figure out. So there's a chapter in the book called Staying in Your Lane to really identify what's your what's your mission and how do you line up opportunities. And, and then it just brings a whole level of innovation that we never thought we'd have otherwise. I mean, COVID, as horrible as it's been, has created enormous levels of innovation we, because we got rid of our plan. COVID wasn't any in anybody's plan. Once we got rid of the plan, then we could really start to innovate and let God work in our lives rather than us trying to control the future and minimize what he's doing and could do among us. We're talking with Dr. Roger Parrott. He is the president of Bellhaven University. You can visit with him there at bellhaven.edu. The book is Opportunity Leadership, Stop Planning and Start Getting Results. Roger, um, there's something happening um, with version and this book. Can you, um, can you brief, brief us in on that? Because that's news to me. Yeah, I was really honored. Uversion is doing a reading plan on the book, and it's a great way. There are four, um, there are four days of reading plan. And, you know, I, I think especially because, as you said, this has got to be a team effort. A leader can't just say, I'm going to do this and do it on their own. It's way too radical. They're going to get fired if they do. They've got to work. They've got to bring people along. And in the book, I talk about how do you bring people along. But the Uversion is a great place to start because a four-day reading plan gives you a taste of the book gives a, a, a biblical foundation for it. And it's a it's a way that you could, you know, if you're a pastor, have your told 
team read it, or even your congregation if you want, if you're uh, if you're running a school or a ministry or or, or or Christian business. You know, one of the endorsers of the book was uh, Jim Morgan, former president of Krispy Kreme, and he said, this is the game plan we followed to turn around Krispy Kreme. So, uh, uh, you know, the U versions are really nice way because it's a four-day walk through kind of a sampling of some of the big ideas of the book and and gives people an opportunity without having to, to buy the book and put, put a lot of energy into reading it. <laughs> well, we want you guys to check it out. Opportunity Leadership is the book. If you go to uh, the Version Bible app, there's a four-day reading plan available right now from our friends at Moody Publishing. Um, we're going to continue this conversation with Roger in just a moment. I'm going to have him tell us a little bit more about sailboats versus power boats, because I think that if we can get this image in our minds, it can really help us understand as individuals and as leaders of organizations what opportunity leadership really looks like and feels like. So more on opportunity leadership next with with Dr. Roger Parrott. We'll be right back. We are talking with Dr. Roger Parrott. Uh, he is the president of Bellhaven University. We're talking about his new book, Opportunity Leadership, Stop Planning and Start Getting Results. Somebody who you will recognize is uh, is quoted in the book and also endorsed it. That would be me. Uh, and this is what I had to say um, about how I live this out. Like this opportunity leadership is my style of leadership. And so here's what I had to say about it. I anticipate miracles. I offer myself as a ready instrument for God's use. And to the very best of my ability, I do the next right thing that aligns with my gifting and mission. Along the way, that has meant I have served in congregational ministry, national ministry, ecumenical ministry, and now on the faculty of a university with a media ministry where I reach thousands of people every day via live radio. I never planned any of it. So how does all that happen? Moment by moment, day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, decade by decade, for a lifetime that when looking back reveals a strategic plan that I experienced as one grace-filled opportunity after another. That's uh, opportunity leadership for me. Roger Parrott has a lot to say about the traits and tendencies of opportunity leaders in the book, Opportunity Leadership. Roger, um, tell us a little more about the difference between an organization seeing itself and functioning as a sailboat versus a powerboat. Yeah, that's an image that's been really helpful to me through the years as I've implemented this at Bellhaven University. And, you know, as I got into writing the book, I realized it really is a whole different model of leadership. And, and so I did define it, and, and, uh, but, but a definition you can't carry around with you. Uh, the, the definition is opportunity leadership is grounded in waiting, and that's a key, waiting and anticipation for God-given opportunities to develop that mess seamlessly with our mission, our gifting, and our capacity, propelling us to destinations that are heavenly ordained. And so this model of sailboat and powerboat is what I've used to kind of 
make that real in the life of, of our campus as we've used this and of other ministries who've adopted it. And there's such a big difference between a, a sailboat and a powerboat. You know, one is all built on trust. If you're going to be in a sailboat, you've got to trust the wind. If you're in a powerboat, you trust the motor. It's self-determined. If you're in a sailboat, you've got to listen. You've got to focus on everything that's going around you and you're focused on the vastness of the sky. In a powerboat, you're focused on the motor and what you can generate. You know, in, in sailing, there's a ton of preparation. In, in a powerboat, you just gas and go. I mean, the, the list goes on. I <laughs> detail it in the book. Even relationships in a sailboat, if you're going to be on a sailboat with other people, everybody's got to work together. you got to be in tune with each other. In a powerboat, you can just kind of kind of tell people what to do. And as you go through, you kind of pollute the water and, and create a big wake. And in a sailboat, everybody turns and wants to be part of it. In a powerboat, they kind of cover their ears till it's gone. In the church, we have started to create and gotten pretty good at creating some really powerful powerboats, and we're proud of them. And in doing so, we're missing the wind of God. We're not even hearing it anymore to go where He wants to take us. I like uh, the observation you make that there's just a lot of ministries that are trying to have a foot on each kind of boat. Um, that does not work very well. Uh, and so, you know, g- give us, you know, sort of extend the invitation to commit to one. Well, it, yeah, it is a commitment. You, I mean, you've got you've to get off of the powerboat and let it go. Now, again, people need to understand the distinctive I'm talking about. I'm talking about long-range planning, not operational planning. We do lots of operational planning at our campus, and we plan those things. But let go of the destination planning. Let God pick the destinations. You know, there's sometimes I sit in my office at the beginning of a semester, and I literally wonder, what in the world are we going to do this year? Because I don't know what the new things are going to be. But God opens up one thing after another. I had experience with my board a few years ago. We were about 10, 12 years into this. And, um, and I thought, I've got to help to emphasize this more. So I took to my board and I passed out a piece of paper. It's called a five-year plan. And, uh, of course, they looked at me funny because I knew we had bought into no planning. And, and goal number one was to, to raise the, the enrollment would go up 43%. Goal number two, raise $21 million, which for us was a ton of money. Goal number three, build $31 million of new buildings. And goal number four, you know, seven new undergraduate programs. Goal number next one was eight graduate programs, all this stuff. Well, they finally realized what was going on. That wasn't the plan for the next five years. That was the plan. That was what we actually did the previous five years. And I said, if I brought this as a plan five years ago as a hope for the future, first of all, we would have cut it back by about two thirds of what we knew we could do. And secondly, you would have thought I was pretty nuts and we were unstable in our leadership. Instead, we trusted God for opportunities. He did so much more than we could ever imagine. And that's what I'm encouraging people to do. Let go of that plan. Let God do something way beyond what you think you can do. And God will bring opportunities. You have to expect them. When God brings an opportunity and you know that it's aligned with uh, with your mission, you know it is, uh, you know, it's aligned with uh, your gifting, it's aligned with your passion, are there times, Roger, that you have to stop doing some other things that you've been doing in order to say yes to the new thing? 
<laughs> the church is not very good at stopping things. We're great right. At That's what I'm things. thinking. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, we, we don't stop things. And, um, and so, and I think the problem is, you know, we, we believe God led us to it. We prayed over it. We made a big announcement that God was leading us into this and it didn't work. Well, I've stopped a lot of things. My board's been good about that. And my faculty has been good about that. And what we have found is when we stop things, that experience usually prepared us for something new down the road. But yeah, you've got to be able to stop things. And, um, and part of that, because you're not planning, you're not looking at every detail before you start, opportunities come when we respond with speed. And so you've got to respond with speed. You've got to get into it. But you've got to have that courage to say, let's get to stop this thing. We're going to start this thing. Instead, in the church, we tend to overlay it. We keep the first thing going. We put the other one on top of it because the first one didn't work, and neither one winds up being very effective. On the speed front, uh, Bellhaven uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, was able to say yes to a really great opportunity um, in terms of students uh, in a new program in China where a state university in the in the southwestern United States was uh, not able to move with the kind of speed to say yes. And so that opportunity is going to Bellhaven and not uh, to, uh, you know, to a big state university in the United States. So we're uh, we're excited with you about all of the opportunities that God is opening um, for you. Thank you for walking faithfully in them. Roger Parrott is the president of Bellhaven University. You can find him at Bellhaven with one L, bellhaven.edu. The book we've been discussing today, Opportunity Leadership, Stop Planning and Start Getting Results. You can participate in a four-day reading plan today on the Version Bible app. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. I'm Carmen LaBurge, and we'll be right back. There's always a reason to always choose joy. There's something good that the world can't destroy. Maybe we ought to just focus on that reality today. There's something good the world can't destroy. In order to uh, declare that and believe it and participate in it, you and I have to know the one who is good, who defines all that is good. I remember uh, as, a, as a little child, um, I mean, I assume my parents taught me to pray this way. God is great. And God is good. And then we would thank him for our food. We would acknowledge that by his hand, we all are fed. Um, and we would ask him then to give us this day our daily bread. Um, those prayers rolled off my tongue as a child. And yet each one of those claims, God is great and God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands, we all are fed. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, every single one of those phrases is just rich with theology and doctrine and hope and promise and God's provision and goodness and greatness and my trust in him and my acknowledgement of his sovereignty and my putting intentionally abiding in him and dwelling on him and thanking him, being sure that I return thanks and acknowledge his grace. Let's be people today who recognize that God is great and God is good. And he is the one who then defines the goodness of everything else. You've been listening to Mornings with Carmen. I am Carmen LaBurge. You can find the podcast, the rebroadcast of this show 
and lots of other resources at myfaithradio.com. This is Faith Radio. Have a great day and God bless. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at myfaithradio.com.